Well, good morning. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here at Community Church, and I am really glad that each and every one of you is here. Wherever you are in your journey, I am really glad that you're here to worship uh, with us this morning. I want to start you with a question. What is it that you regret? When you hear the word regret, what, what comes to your mind? Maybe it's the good that you failed to do. It's the missed opportunities that you've had. Maybe it's, if you're really honest, it's messes you've helped to create. Maybe you're living in the aftermath of somebody else's regret. But whatever the case, what is it that you regret? And then what are we to do with that regret? Where is God in the middle of all that? Well, as Brad said, we're finishing up a series called A Faith of Influence. And we've been looking at uh, some of the tougher parts of the Bible. You know, as Brad said earlier, you know, it doesn't, the, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat things. It doesn't clean everything up and say these are these perfect people. If you would just be like them, life would be grand. The Bible presents an unvarnished account of the real struggles, real sins, real regret of people that God has worked through. In our series, we've been looking at, um, we started with Hannah and her prayer and her way of processing pain, and we've worked through, you know, looking at Samuel and looking at Saul, and then looking in particular at King David. And this morning, we're going to return to this story, this account of what happens kind of in the aftermath of David's sin. And I want to remind us all that as we've been looking at these Old Testament stories, the New Testament gives us some clear counsel on how we are to read these stories. Paul says in Romans 15 that everything that was written in the past is for our instruction so we can learn from it. Jesus himself on the the, the road to Emmaus after the resurrection He says, all these stories point to me. So they're both a mirror that helps us learn and they're a pointer to Jesus. And that's the tack that we've been taking as we've considered what are the things that influence us and what is the influence we might have on others. So we pick up the account today with King David. And as we studied as we examined last week, David has committed some, some massive sins, and he has huge regrets. And in his attempt to, to cover over his sins and preserve his reputation, there's lots of damage, there's lots of messes, and we're going to look at some of that process and how God We'll meet him in that and what it can point to for us. In particular, we're going to look at the tears of the king. The tears of the king. I invite you to pray with me as we 
enter into God's word. Father, we thank you for the reality of your word. We thank you that you give us these true historical accounts that in some ways hold up a mirror to our own sin, a mirror to our own regret, and they give us hope, hope that's ultimately found in you, Jesus. So I ask, Lord, that my words would be clear, that they'd be helpful, that they would be true, that they'd bring you glory and honor. Burn off whatever doesn't do those things this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be our teacher this morning. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verse 15. I'm going to give a little bit of um, a little bit of a window into David's tears. The tears of the king. 2 Samuel 12, 15, after Nathan had gone home, you may recall Nathan is the prophet, Nathan is the one who has confronted David and says, you are the man. And while David is in some ways restored, he is not spared from the consequences of his sin. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David. And he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the night's lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him? The child is dead. He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Here in this little picture of grief, we see both the consequences of David's sin, his sin against Bathsheba, his sin against Uriah, his sin against others. We see the consequences of that. At the same time, we see this glimmer of grace. You will have another child, Solomon, nicknamed Jedediah. God loves him. So we see both the 
the grief, the tears, the agony, the regret, and the grace side by side. But there's also a prophecy that Nathan has given to David that the sword will never leave his house. And sometimes as we look at the Bible, we look at the highlight reel of David, but we don't look at some of the other parts that happen in his family. One of David's sons, Amnon, cannot control his lust for his beautiful sister, Tamar, so he conspires with his friend and he rapes her. Two years later, one of David's other sons, Absalom, will take vengeance and kill him, murder his brother. David will weep bitterly. One of the things about David, you see the highest of highs and you see the lowest of lows. And we see David's tears. And while he cries for the death of his son, I have to imagine that there must be pain of regret. That it's his actions that have led to this as well. Well, Absalom, who's described as the most handsome man in all of Israel, will eventually turn against his father David and lead a coup. Now, Absalom has great hair. He's known for his hair. In fact, his, his hair is so thick, once a year he would get it cut and they would weigh it, and it would be like five pounds. I've never weighed my hair, but I imagine that's a lot. Five pounds of hair. Beautiful man. But yet he will rebel against David. And in fact, it's his hair that becomes his undoing because Absalom is riding a mule and he goes under an oak tree and the branch is low and he gets caught in his hair. It's probably a whole nother sermon there, but we'll just leave that detail there. So as he's hanging, as he's suspended, Joab, who is the ruthless, does all the dirty work for David. He's the one that will... Now, David has said, spare my son. Whatever you do, spare my son. But Joab, the general, will say, I know better than you, David. I know what's best for you. And he will take three javelins and kill Absalom. This is a brutal story. A brutal historical account. And let me take you to David's response in 2 Samuel 19, verse 31. Then the Cushite arrived and said, My lord, the king... Hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all those who rose up against you. So the Israelite, you know, so David's been victorious. His house has been victorious. The king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? Is my son still alive? The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, 
my son. We see at least three times in this account of David's life that he cries tears. He mourns. He regrets. And these accounts give us a window into David's grief and his pain. So what are we to do with this? What what might they teach us? Two truths from last week. The first was that we are capable of more sin than we think. That's the bad news. But that's the reality. That's the warning. We said if, if David, 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 the one who stood up to Goliath while everybody else was cowering in fear, the one who God worked through to kill Goliath, David, the man after God's own heart, David, King David, the one that God would inspire to write so many of the songs, the one who would point us to the King of Kings. If he could fall, as we said last week, then at the very least we ought to have the humility to say, you know what, I might be capable of more bad things than I think. Here we see David's regret. We see this picture. We see the reality of the consequences of his his choices to distance himself from God. And we... I know I'm led to ask the question, why? How, how does this happen? How does this happen? How could David be so close to God, apparently, and do what he did? It's a question we ask ourselves sometimes, too. I think to answer that, we need to look at the root of sin. And I would add to this point by simply saying sin runs deeper than we think sin runs deeper than we think and the apostle Paul gives us this picture of this in Romans chapter 7 I want to read this to you Romans 7 18 for I know that good itself does not dwell in me that is in my sinful nature for I have the desire to do what is good but I cannot carry it out For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? The bad news is this is the battle we all face. This is this internal conflict, this war within. A war within, this battle with sin, with death, that's against God, that's against what he would have us do. We all face that battle. We may not sin at the magnitude David has, but yet we all experience this battle. 
Until Jesus returns, this is the battle that we will face. That's the bad news. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why did I do that? What, 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 where did that come from? Well, the good news is in Romans 7.25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the good news. He rescues us. Well, how does this rescue take place? Well, if you've been in church for a minute, you know that rescue takes place at the cross. I want you to make some connections here. Jesus is the true and perfect king. David, go back to David, he hears of Absalom's death and cries and says to his rebellious child, now hear this, if only I had died instead of you. If only I had died instead of you. These tears, these cries of King David point us to the tears of our true king. Jesus looks at us, looks at our rebellion, dies on our behalf, dies the death we were meant to have. He takes the spears, he takes the pain. David, as we kind of prayed together last week in Psalm 51, cries out to the Lord, hide my face, or hide his face from his sins to cleanse him, to make him whiter than snow. That's the heart, that's the cry of David. Jesus would cry out to his father in the garden. Is there any other way? He would cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His father would turn his back on his only son so that we could become whiter than snow. Are you thankful for that grace? Are you thankful for what Jesus has done for you in rescuing you, saving you? Yes, yes, yes. If you've never taken that step, if you've never taken that step of belief, today's your day. Let's, let's talk about that. What a picture. But sometimes I think we stop too soon when we think about grace. We think about that initial grace that saves us, that rescues us. But there's more to it than that. Sometimes I think there's a gap between that which we maybe see as an abstract truth, that which is legal, that which seems contractual. Okay, when I put my faith and trust in Christ, he pays the debt, I'm saved. That's great. And I don't want to take anything away from that, but there's more to it. There's more to that grace. There's more to that grace. And I think sometimes there's a gap between that which we can conceptualize and that which we can actually experience. Even in the midst of our deepest pains 
and regrets. I'll take you to a passage that I believe is one beautiful picture that closes that gap between that which is abstract and theoretical and that which is like, I can feel this, I can experience this. So go all the way to the right in your Bible. Go to the, go to the end. I'll take you to Revelation 21. This is the Apostle John. He's had this grand vision of the new heaven and the new earth. He says in, John, in Revelation 21, verse 3, And I, this is John, heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Jesus himself God, will wipe away your tears. When's the last time you considered that? You, you thought about that? You, so, so we look ahead and we imagine that day to come when he will do that. I believe it adds another dimension to God's grace. I love one of the verses we sang in that last song, the glory of Almighty God, the centerpiece of all that is, the selflessness of triune love demands our highest worship. So when we grasp that we begin to grasp it and as we said last week there's these truths about grace that God's grace is more incomprehensible I don't know what it's going to look like for Jesus to wipe away every tear I don't know what that's going to look like but I can feel that I can feel that love I can feel that compassion it's going to lead me to worship so God's grace is more incomprehensible, it's more multifaceted, and it's more practical than we think. So how do we grow, how do we train in grace? What, is that, what does that look like? How do we go from just having this grand vision of worship, of looking ahead, of looking to that one day, to what about today? What about Monday? What about the pain what about the regret that I have today? I want to give you another picture from the book of Revelation. I want you to go towards the beginning of Revelation. I want you to go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. These are the words of Jesus. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, if you haven't been in the book of Revelation for a minute or you've never encountered it, 
there are these letters that are written to different churches. This passage is in the context of the letter to the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. And I was rereading a great book by uh, Shane Wood called Between Two Trees, and he reminded me of this truth. Sometimes when we hear this passage, Jesus is knocking at the door, let him in, all this, and sometimes we hear it in the context of evangelism or accept Christ, come to Jesus for the first time. And I'm not saying that's an inappropriate use of the metaphor, but who's Jesus' audience here? It's the church. It's believers that he's talking to. And he says this, what's his motivation? Those whom he, he, he loves, he, he is rebuking and disciplining. Rebuke, do you like that word? That's a real churchy world, word that I, we don't sometimes like sometimes, but to rebuke is to bring something to light. That's what it means. It's, it's to bring the truth to light. To discipline is to train, it's to instruct. That's what this is about. But notice what Jesus does. Get this picture. Jesus is knocking. He's asking for permission here. He doesn't force himself on us. He asks for permission to train us. He invites us to participate. He promises to be with us. Now, what does this training look like? I want you to get this picture. Jesus is going to this church. The, 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 the church has its issues. He's saying, I'm going to bring things to light. I'm going to train you, instruct you, but you've got to open the door and let me in so I can do that. I can train you. What's it look like? Well, there's, there's God's part of this. I want to take you to 2 Peter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need. One of the simple definitions of God's grace is God giving you what you need. For a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we sang about that. In the divine nature, perfect community having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That's what he promises. Now, what's our part? Peter continues, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, into goodness knowledge, into knowledge self-control, into self-control perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. There's grace, there's the grace that saves. Not your own works, that's the grace that saves, but there's a grace that trains. And I believe this leads us to a bottom line that simply says, trust him to train you. 
Trust Jesus to train you. Not simply to save you, yes, yes, and yes, but also to train you. Jesus himself invites us to let him in and train us daily, moment by moment. It's not simply Jesus died on the cross and I'll see you someday in heaven. He is with us if we would only let him in. Now, I was thinking about what does that actually look like? What does that, what does that mean? How, how, do you, how do you make sense of that concept? And I was re- reminded of this. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I'm, I'm teaching, um, teaching a class on mentally healthy faith. A lot of folks in there are having a good time, learning some good stuff. It's not, not too late. You didn't come this Wednesday. I don't mean this to be a promo for the class, but just know you're always welcome. But part of what we're doing is we're looking at some video content from this you know, really skilled uh, teacher. And the first night, I, um, I thought I had the video all queued up and ready to go. But when it came time and I hit play, all I got was that evil circle that's processing, processing, processing. So I'm like, you know, you got to do what you got to do. You got to shut some things down, reboot, you know, finally get it to work. And then I'm talking to our beloved IT director, Clay, the next day. I said, you know, I had a little bit of an issue. He says, well, and Clay knows me really well. We've walked lots of miles together. He's rescued me many times. He said, well, it would probably help if you closed some of those 37 tabs you had open. (laughs) My beloved wife, Kim, who knows me well, has said the same thing to me. I have some, some patterns I need to work on. But I came to this conclusion in that little moment that the operating system in my computer was not designed to handle all of those different applications. It was too much. It was too much. I had to shut some things down. Then I got to thinking about, okay, there's a difference between an operating system and an app. Tech people, this is your day. (laughs) What's an operating system do? Well, it does at least three things that I can... My, my little brain can understand. First of all, when you, when you flip your computer on, everything runs through that operating system. Just what it does. That's the first thing it does. It starts with that. But it also connects you to the hardware. Everything runs through your operating system. It's the first thing that goes on. Everything runs through it and it connects you. And I believe our problem sometimes is we've simply made Jesus an app, not our operating system. We've just made Jesus an app. He's just one of many things running 
But what if we actually made Jesus? And we said, you know what? I'm not the operating system. Jesus, I'm going to let you be the operating system. I'm going to run every, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to, everything's going to run through you. And I'm going to be connected to you. Ty would invite you to consider this. And I got a prayer card for you today that's got steps and all kinds of great applications you can make. But what I would invite you to do right now is simply to invite Jesus to actually train you and be your operating system. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we we come to you this morning and we come with a, a picture of your grace and we ask that you would help us to extend that picture so we could see you more clearly so we could actually trust you to train us. That's our prayer this morning, Lord. So do whatever you need to do to get us to that point where we can release control of our own systems and just simply give those to you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.